0: Thank you, Luke, that was was wonderful. If you were to come uh, up to the office and come visit me in the back right corner, I I think you would get a a pretty good idea of the things that I am affectionate for. From the pictures that I have on the wall to the memorabilia that is on uh, my bookshelves and on my desk, and from what would inevitably come up in conversation, you would learn very quickly that I love sports, namely the Atlanta Braves. But I think, and I hope, that you wouldn't just get this idea that Jeremy loves the Atlanta Braves. I I think from the number of pictures that are in the room, uh, from what I I said about my family, I think that you would come to find that I do adore my wife and child, even more than the Atlanta Braves, because my wife and child don't let me down nearly as bad as the Braves do. Uh, based on the, the group photos from different youth ministry events that, that we've had over the last several years, uh, I think that you would, would get the idea that I really do enjoy my job here. I really enjoy working with the group of students that are at this church. You might ask me what my plans are for the weekend or what an evening looks like in the Hudson House. You might ask me, uh, where my favorite vacation spot is or what is my, my favorite restaurant. You might ask me what I do in the mornings or what gets me distracted during the day. And the tone that I use, the, the facial expressions that I make, hesitancy to answer certain questions or quick attempts to justify the answer that I've just given will tell you a lot about the things that I care the most about. And likewise, if I came into your home or came to your office, I assume that I would be able to learn the same about you. From the decoration that's on the wall to what you say to me, I bet that I could figure out what you care deeply about. I mean, we all have different hobbies, we have different interests, we have different things that we care about, but... In all that we like, we all have those things and those people that we reserve the strongest affections for. In his letter to the Philippians, we learn quite a bit about the things that Paul was affectionate for. If we were to read all that precedes the text that we're going to be in this morning, we would have read Paul's declaration that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm sure the Philippians probably went to their their local lifeway there in Philippi and had that on a nice little piece of wood in their church. We would have seen that he is rejoicing in the spread of the gospel as he proclaims it to the soldiers that were tasked with guarding him. He was rejoicing in the spread of the gospel through those who were encouraged by his imprisonment. He was rejoicing in the spread of the gospel through those who, taking advantage of Paul being off the playing field, were declaring the gospel out of a place of jealousy. We would have read his commendations of Timothy and Epaphroditus for their faithful service and love both to himself and to the church at Philippi. And we would have read about how even in his imprisonment, he was urging the Philippians to continue in the faith, continue growing and maturing in knowledge of the Lord Jesus and love for him. And so when we get to Philippians 3... We then find Paul kind of bringing those things together to caution the church to watch out for those who would make demands of them that are contrary to the gospel. Paul's deepest affections were for Christ Jesus, and that was evident in the life that he lived. And he wanted this to be true of the Philippians so that they would be prepared when false doctrine reared its ugly head. So with that, I'm going to read for us Philippians 3. Verses one to eleven. It says finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, whom worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the first point that I want to make to you this morning from the text that we've read is that believers guard themselves against false doctrine. Now, when Paul opens with rejoice in the Lord... We need to see, this is not some generic little truth nugget. He's like, hey, you know what? You guys are so much more tolerable to be around when you're rejoicing in the Lord, so please just keep on keeping on rejoicing Jesus. No, it's, it's, it's more than that. Knowing Jesus and being known by him was to be the greatest joy in the Philippians' lives. Faithfulness to Him and maturing in their faith was to be what motivated them above anything else. They were to have a deep and abiding love for Christ that grounded them during their highest highs and sustained them during their lowest lows. But, based on what follows, it seems that Paul wanted their affection for Christ to do more than just be a guide for them through the ebb and flow of life. Paul wanted them to be grounded in their affection for Jesus in order to guard themselves when the truth that they profess was called into question. Of rejoicing in the Lord, Paul says, "...to write these same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Since living a faithful Christian life is impossible without continual affection and love for Jesus. Paul says that it is no trouble to say these same things over and over again. The Philippians needed to be reminded of this day by day, and so do we. And so learning and embracing this, Paul says, is safe, because embracing the great love that Christ has for them, that he has bought their pardon from their sins in spite of themselves. This is a safeguard for them when false doctrine arose. And based off of what we see in verse 2, it seems Paul is concerned about a particular false gospel. He's concerned about the Judaizers and their insistence that salvation came through the law of Moses. See, we learn with the Judaizers what they were all about in Acts 15. There, we read about men coming from Judea who came to the Gentile believers in Antioch and demanded that they be circumcised in order to be saved. This led to the Jerusalem Council, which proclaimed salvation both for the Jew and for the Gentile came solely by the grace of the Lord Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet... Of course. That didn't eliminate opponents of the gospel. So Paul warned the Philippians, you need to be on the lookout for these liars and these deceivers. He calls them dogs, which was a term of derision that the Jews actually used for the Gentiles. This was reference to their being ceremonially unclean, but here Paul is taking their insult and in irony of ironies, he's turning it right back on them. He says it's the Judaizers who claimed that they, being the true people of God, were the ones who were actually unclean. They thought they were the true people of God, and yet their sin made them unclean. He then calls them evildoers. While they believed that the works of the law that they did and that they were performing made them holy and righteous, Paul again flips the script. Saying that the works that they thought were good and righteous and made them such were in fact works of evil. These Judaizers denied the lordship of Jesus of Nazareth and with their belief that salvation came by works, making their good works worthless and evil in the eyes of God. He calls them those who mutilate the flesh, a reference to their insistence on circumcision for salvation. They held tightly to the mark of God's covenant with Abraham that we can read about in Genesis 17. But here, Paul says that circumcision was not actually proof of who were truly the people of God. He writes about this in Romans 2, saying in Romans 2:28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. The people of God are those who have their hearts made new through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The people of God are those who have their eyes opened to their sin and their just condemnation before God Almighty by the Holy Spirit and respond by repenting and believing in Jesus, whose sacrifice buys their pardon. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit that God's people can know Him and praise Him. That's why Paul says in verse 3 that the circumcision are those who worship by the Spirit of God. They are the ones who are led by the Spirit in believing, singing, learning, and living according to faith in Jesus Christ. The true people of God are those who rejoice in Christ... Their greatest joy is found in Him. So Paul urged the Philippians, set your affections on Christ and on Him alone. And this will safeguard your hearts against what is false, erroneous, and what will lead you down a path toward destruction. Yes. This was true then, and it remains true today. Believers must guard against false doctrine. But what is it? We should probably define it. I would argue that false doctrine or bad theology, this is anything that leads me away from the gospel, away from biblical truth, and prevents me from right and true worship of God. And so what are those things in our day? Well, like in Paul's day, we have to guard against anything that teaches justification by works rather than by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We need to be on the lookout for the prosperity gospel that leads to worship of possessions and comfort, not God. And so rightfully so, these doctrines are mentioned regularly. I think when we hear the term false doctrine, we hear bad theology, I think instantly our mind is probably going to go to these things. We're probably going to go to the prosperity gospel. We're probably going to go to salvation by works. That's going to come up in our minds first. Maybe the peddlers of the prosperity gospel, like Joel Osteen or Cree Flo Dollar, Paula White. Maybe that's where our mind goes first. But in our me-centered American culture, we have to understand that there is a lot more that we ought to be concerned about. The slope leading from truth into error is way more slippery than I think that we will often acknowledge when we're listening to sermons or watching sermon clips on social media, how do we identify what is good and edifying from the junk? See, if, if we readily give a sermon or the person who said it our stamp of approval just because they read a verse or two from the Bible, Jesus was mentioned a lot, and I felt encouraged by it. Because we need to be a lot more discerning than just that. Being impressed with someone because they teach me something new or explain things in a new way, that's not a critical enough lens because the newness of it may just be be because it is wrong. Try to figure out how to say be as many times as I can. There are a lot of people whose error may not be obvious because they hide it behind an engaging personality Great energy on stage, a powerful worship band, and frequent mention of God's love. But if we really scrutinize their teaching, we would see that they're peddling a man-centered gospel that acts as if the cross was nothing more than God acknowledging how special He thinks I am and making sure that I know how special I am as well. We've got to ask questions like, Was the point of what I just heard the exaltation of Christ Jesus? Am I more aware of and convicted by my sin based off of what I just heard? And will this help me in my pursuit of holiness? Or is it more of I'm smart enough, I'm pretty enough, I'm strong enough, and golly gee, Jesus likes me for me. I hope you'll ask these same questions of what comes out of my mouth this morning. I hope that you apply these no matter who it is, how much you trust them. Because our souls are at stake. But this is true of more than just so-called sermons. What about the music that we listen to? What requirements do we, do we put on what we listen to in our car or what we want to hear sung in our worship services? Are the only requirements that we have a catchy beat and good sound that mention Jesus and above all else it makes me feel good when I leave? If those boxes get checked and it comes on WDJC or k then it must be fine, right? All of those things are certainly true of what a beautiful name from Hillsong Worship. And frankly, I'll just be gut level honest with you, there's a lot about that song that I really like. It's a lot of sound doctrine in it. And so that makes it, you know, real tempting to want to overlook the line that says, You didn't want heaven without us. So, Jesus, you brought heaven down. But, church, do you see the problem here? Jesus wasn't lonely in heaven without us there by his side. The eternal Son of God shared perfect. Fellowship with the eternal God the Father and God the Spirit. The additions of saints into the kingdom of God don't improve upon a product that was somehow lacking. Heaven is not about you and I. It is for the glory and the honor and the praise of God Almighty. But the subtle lie that's whispered in the midst of a song that otherwise exalts the greatness of Jesus is that it's all about you. You are special, and Jesus saw that, and so he just couldn't have heaven without you. The filters that we apply to preaching need to be applied to the music that we listen to as well. Who is the song focused on, me or Jesus? Do these lyrics promote biblical truth that's testified to in scripture? Or do the lyrics present God as mainly being concerned in the crucifixion of Jesus that I know just how worthy of his love that I am? And so to this end, I I feel I would be wrong if at this point I didn't stop and say just how thankful I am for Luke and his leadership over the music ministry here at Emmanuel. There's not a single Sunday where I show up worried, are we going to sing lyrics that exalt Jesus or are confused? Having someone here who leads us in Christ-exalting, sound doctrine is a blessing. It is a grace to us from the Lord Jesus. And that's not something that every congregation can rightfully claim. We ought to be thankful for the work that Luke does for us as a body. Of course, there's even more danger out there than just poor theology and music and sermons. What about the devotions and the books that get super popular so we check them out to see what the deal is? I went to Lifeway yesterday to to pick up a a free book, because free stuff rocks. And right when you walk in the door, huge Sarah Young section devoted to Jesus Calling and its many offspring. And that's found itself on more than a few bookshelves and coffee tables. And you know, it it may come packaged as encouraging, inspiring love notes from our Savior, but that's a lie. The very premise behind Sarah Young writing Jesus Calling, denies the sufficiency of Scripture. Listen to her own words as to why she wrote it. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible. Listen to this. But I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Guys, the Spirit-inspired Word of God through which He still speaks to us, reveals Himself, points us to His Son and the grace that He offers in Christ Jesus. To say that that's not enough, that I need to hear from Him one-on-one, outside and beyond Scripture, is bad on every level. But then, of course, you also have The Shack, a best-selling novel that was recently adapted into a movie. And so, among other things, you have the very problematic presentation of the Trinity, in that the Trinity, every member of it, takes bodily form. You have an African-American woman named Papa that is the Father. You have a Jewish carpenter that is Jesus, so at least that got kind of close. And then you have an Asian woman who takes the form of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes the form of an Asian woman. You then have a Jesus who, well, they affirm his, uh, his manhood, but they deny his divinity. Uh, you have the idea that sin is its own punishment and that God the Father doesn't actually want to punish us for our sin. And then you have universalism, the idea that all will be reconciled to God no matter one's faith or lack thereof. This is dangerous. The premise behind Jesus' calling is dangerous. Music and sermons that have you and I right at their very center are dangerous. If we are going to faithfully follow Jesus, we must be mindful of the theology that we are taking in. But if we ignore the warnings and flood our minds with bad theology, then it is inevitably going to hinder or outright prevent us from true and proper worship of the Lord. At best, it will lead us to a weak, watered-down, and useless faith, or just make a shipwreck of it entirely. Think of it like you would if someone were to offer you a piece of raw meat. If you eat it, there might be some protein in there for you, but it is going to make you very sick, and it is probably going to kill you. If our affections are for Jesus, then our, desi- our desires are going to be for sound doctrine. Sound. We are going to want to guard our minds because sound doctrine helps us to know Him and to follow Him rightly. This brings him glory, it brings him honor, and it brings him praise. And so we're going to enjoy sermons and music and literature that exalt Jesus and teach us how to do the same. We're going to ask hard questions that maybe cause us to stop listening to certain people or musicians that we really enjoy or that make us feel good about ourselves because they are not equipping us to honor our Lord. And I hope that you will do this. I hope I will do this. I'll be willing to put the lens on the things that I enjoy because we're sinners. And the reality is is that none of us are above the temptations that come from a steady diet of bad doctrine. And so that's our second thing for this morning, is that no one is immune from feeling justified by good morals and hard work. In verses 4 to 6, Paul points to his own life to defend his point to the Philippians that works and status do not save anyone. If righteousness came through being a Jew and adhering to the law, Paul ran laps around these Judaizers, all right? He was circumcised eight days after being born uh, in proper accordance with Old Testament law. He was ethnically Jewish and came from the tribe of Benjamin, who was one of only two children that were born to Jacob by his beloved wife, Rachel, the tribe of Benjamin, was also only one of two who remained loyal to the throne of David following the split of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms after the reign of Solomon. He he was a Hebrew through and through, having been born to Hebrew parents. He knew the law and was so zealous for it that he sought to put an end to the church. This was Saul who stood by in affirmation, holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen to death. Saul, who asked for and was given permission to go to other towns so that he could throw more Christians in prison. And he did this all the while, standing out as blameless according to the law, based on his faithfulness to it. He was a man other Jews would have sought to have been like, one that their religious leaders could be proud of, None of the Judaizers could come close to laying out a better case or more credentials to earn righteousness through status and works than he could. But that's not what he came to Philippi proclaiming. In verse 7, we see that he casts it all aside for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, It didn't justify him, his works, and it never could. His justification was only possible by grace, through faith in Jesus. None of his works, none of his status, not a minute little drop of it was worth anything to him. It was trash that needed to be discarded and burned. His boast was in Christ and in Christ alone. His boast was in the finished work of Christ. Christ on the cross. Paul also knew that even the most faithful follower of Jesus could fall prey to the appeal of morals and works. Consider his interaction with Peter from Galatians 2, 11-14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas being Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. to live like Jews Peter who was sent by God through a vision in which he declared to Peter that I have made the Gentiles clean, sends Peter to Cornelius where Peter himself sees the spirit fall on Gentiles, he sinned because of false doctrine, a doctrine of works, Barnabas who was sent out with Paul by the church at Antioch, a church that's comprised of Jew and Gentile Christians to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles, he fell as well. This is why believers must guard themselves. Because no one is safe from feeling justified by the things that we do. It's all too easy to feel as if God must surely be pleased with me because I'm checking off box after box in the Bible reading plan. I'm making excellent points in my small group. You know what? I should be leading my small group. I make such good points. And I never, never, ever, ever miss a Sunday service. Maybe we feel that way because of the specific positions that we take on matters of social justice. Maybe we look at how much work and career success that we have as God signaling, I approve of you. It could be feelings like God is most satisfied with me if my kids are behaving themselves and excelling academically and in extracurriculars. But then what happens? See, we've already started establishing our own balance scales to determine righteousness, so now I'm going to start putting people on the other side to prove my point of just how good I am. Whether it's approaches to social justice, academic success, Bible studies we attend, how our kids act, how good we are at our jobs, or specific sins that we avoid, we love to take hold of that balance scale. And when we do, it will always conveniently find itself tipped in our favor. But if I take a stand against social injustice but take a harsh and demeaning approach to those who don't approach it the same way that I am, then am I missing the log that's in my own eye? Do I take my love for country and compare it to someone who maybe doesn't seem as enthusiastic as I am? Do do I feel like that makes me a a better Christian than them? Or cause me to doubt their salvation entirely? If I strive for academic and career, career success, working as if unto the Lord, I tell myself, but neglect my family and growth in things of eternal value, personal holiness, and the mission of the church, am I truly loving God? If I consider the good morals that I or my kids live by and think that God must be pleased with me because those people over there, they don't act like us, am I just virtue signaling and blind to my own spiritual apathy? All I've done is take things that are good and they're commendable when they're motivated by love for God and the mission that he gave the church. And I've just turned them into my own personal measuring stick by which I am justified before God. is isn't nearly as big of a jump to go from good, Christ-exalting works to being the evildoers that we read about in verse 2 as we may think that it is. You may not say word for word or think thought for thought what I just laid out. But if we begin peeling back the layers, would we find those attitudes and others like them running rampant in our own minds as the motivation behind why we do the things that we do and say the things that we say? If reading the Bible and calling out others' others' sins saved us, then Jesus didn't need to die But the reality is you and I have sinned and sinned greatly against God Almighty. We have defied Him at every turn. No amount of good deeds or hard work could save us from the hell that we rightfully deserve. It's only because the sinless Son of God bled and died in the place of sinners on the cross that we can be forgiven. It's only because he rose from the grave that those who repent and believe are justified before God. And it's only because he is coming back for his bride, the faithful, repentant church, that we have any hope at all in this world. Paul makes it clear. If anyone could claim righteousness by the right status and good works, it was him. No no one here, none of us, could measure up to him. And he saw all of that as completely worthless compared to the joy of knowing Christ as his Lord. Good morals and hard work aren't enough for us to be counted as righteous before God. But failure to guard ourselves against false doctrine opens the door for us to fall right into that trap. A steady diet of Americanized Christianity that tells me that I am the center of God's universe, I am the apple of his eye, Will do that for you. We have to check our thoughts, our motivations, and our actions to see if our focus is on the exaltation of Jesus, because this is what a new heart has the deepest affections for. And brings me to my last point: is that the affections of the believer are for Christ, His righteousness, and His resurrection. Paul's approach to righteousness changed tremendously, once he encountered the resurrected Jesus. Having his heart made new by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul's greatest affections turned to Christ. We see this in verses 7 and 8, where he says that all that he accomplished, all the power that he held, all the prestige that belonged to him in the Jewish community was worthless compared to the great gain in knowing Christ. Jesus, This gain, he says, is to be found in him and to receive the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Paul calls this the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In Romans 6, Paul talks about our having been united to Christ through our death to sin, being baptized into his death for sin and raised up to walk in the newness of life. This new life, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, is lived by faith in the Son of God. Because as he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It says in Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What Paul found in Jesus was freedom from his sins and now the ability to live a life that was truly pleasing to God. This was because his sin had been credited to Christ. It had been imputed to him. And through his repenting of his sins, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, Paul was now himself clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It was credited to to Him. This is true for every believer, for all who repent of their sins, who turn from their own meaningless efforts to try to justify themselves and trust in Jesus and in Him alone for salvation as the one who bore God's wrath in our place on the cross of Calvary. Having been justified before God, Paul left behind any claims he thought He had to righteousness in order to follow Jesus. He had come to know and understand that it was by faith alone in Christ that he would attain the resurrection from the dead to eternal life. And so knowing this, the sufferings that were his, and bear in mind, Paul is writing from from prison. Paul tells us that he suffered a great deal. And read all about it in Acts. And these sufferings we know are for every believer. We're all called to take up our cross and follow Him. But Paul knew that the sufferings that belonged to him, he could rejoice in them. He was sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he could rejoice in them because his affections were for Jesus. He belonged to Jesus, and his suffering with Christ proved it. This was what he wanted above all else. To know Christ. To be covered by His righteousness and be assured of the resurrection to eternal glory as his reward for faithful obedience to him. And if we recognize the wickedness and the uselessness of our own efforts at righteousness, the impossibility of attaining right standing with God on our own, turning to Christ in faith, this is true of us as well. And yet, it doesn't free us up from the responsibility to guard against false doctrine and bad theology. It also doesn't mean that we get a pass on doing good works. Rather, we strive for more good works that are rooted in sound doctrine and that exalt Christ Jesus. So, do we just stop listening to certain songs or artists, only subscribe to certain podcasts, certain pastors? I mean... If we ask the questions of what and who we listen to that I mentioned earlier, then maybe. Maybe we should. But that can just as easily turn into legalism where we determine holiness based off of the music or preaching that I do or don't listen to and the books that I do or don't read. Good theology is necessary, but it ceases to be good if it's cold and doesn't increase our love for God. If our affections are for Christ and are growing as we increase in our understanding of the Scriptures through good, sound doctrine, there's a litmus test there. There's evidence for it. It will be seen in the fact that our lives look different. Maybe that changes how we relate to our neighbors. Instead of our only interactions being a, hey, as we go in and out of our neighborhood... We have them over for dinner. We seek to get to know them better, and we try to get a gauge on where they are with the Christian faith, that perhaps we might introduce them to Jesus for the first time. Maybe that changes the way that we approach the workplace. What if it was more than just a place to earn a paycheck and advance our career? What if we were more intentional about getting to know our coworkers? And then, instead of only talking about our golf game, the fish we did, the things that we did over the weekend or what we're looking forward to doing next weekend, we invited them to join us where there's more time to talk through the gospel. It could impact the way that I think about academics and about career planning. Instead of it being about just scoring a sweet, good-paying job, it's about preparing in a career field that will make it easier to get a job in a place where I can serve alongside a church plant and help them reach more people. It could change the way that I parent. Instead of A's and B's, athletic success, recital performance and good morals being my primary concern, I make time to learn what they know about the Bible and help them see how it applies to their daily lives life. I model prayer for them by praying with them. I read the Bible with them, and I teach them how to rightly interpret and apply the Scriptures. I create space for them so that they can ask me hard questions, challenging questions about what it means to follow Jesus. The gospel demands that I align my affections with the things that God is most affectionate for. Holiness, the souls of men, the spread of his kingdom, and above all else, the glory of Christ Jesus. If this is what I desire above all else, it is going to be evident to the people who are around me. People will know it when they talk to me, and they will see it when they're with me. And so may we be a church full of people who have adopted the mindset of Paul, that by any means necessary, we may attain the resurrection from the dead to the eternal life promised to us in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Holy, mighty, omnipotent God, Lord, we thank you that you give us this place where we can come to gather, to sing songs of praise to you, to look into your word and consider how you've revealed yourself in it, to see who you are, a just and holy God who is mighty, gracious and merciful, kind, long-suffering, ever-faithful. You, Lord, are glorious. And, Lord, as we encounter you in your word, may you stir within us and deeper affections, a greater long and an abiding love for you. May you be our first thought when we rise and our last when we lay our heads down to sleep. May you develop within us a love that isn't worksless, that isn't faithless, because that wouldn't be love at all. Lord God, stir us to good works, works that exalt your name that bring praise to the Lord Jesus, that cause people to see the gospel and hear the gospel as we proclaim the gospel to those that you put us around, that you would be glorified in all that we do. Lord, forgive us for our our apathy. Lord, forgive us for our, our poor taste buds when it comes to good and sound doctrine. Lord, where we are taking it in, Lord, convict our hearts, open our our eyes to that which is not good for us. By your mercy and your grace, Lord, please do this. And Lord God, point us in the right direction. Draw us back to your word and the truth of it, that we would honor you in all that we say and do. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.